flow refers to those moments of kind of total absorption and rapt attention where you're totally focused on the task or whatever activity it is that you're doing. 30 minutes more of really good quality sleep is gonna make more of a difference than most supplements and at the moment make more of a difference than most sort of smart tech devices. The master value when it comes to using psychedelics is intentionality. Even if your intention is to have fun yeah, <laughs> and true. nothing else, yeah. you still need to have intentionality about it. Because I mean, they, you know, they can be very dangerous substances as well. Hello and welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray, and today we talk all things performance and flow with Ryan Doris. Ryan has implemented peak performance strategies with Fortune 100 companies and has led initiatives with Imperial College in the UCLA and Deloitte. He's assisted Steve Kotler and Jamie Wheel as the right hand in conferences and keynotes and he's also the co-founder and chief growth officer at the Flow Research Collective. And today we talk, we went everywhere when it talks to Flow. We talked about everything from technology to mysticism and we also had a big chat about psychedelics and their therapeutic value, but also their performance value. This is gonna be a good one. We have opened the can, the worms are wriggling. Listen up. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com mate i have to tell you i've been waiting for this interview for a while now it's been it's been something i've been really looking forward to so it's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen, Ryan Doris. Thanks <laughs> nice for having me, boss. Yeah, crowd goes wild. <laughs> Mate, uh, it's great to have you here. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm familiar with the work that you've done with yourself and also Steve uh, um, in, in the in the flow work that you've done. But for perhaps people who don't know who Ryan Doris is, why don't you just give us the 15 second elevator pitch of who is Ryan and what do you do? Yeah, it's a good question. So I'll kind of keep the elevator pitch to the maybe to the professional side for now, and then we can dig into anything else you want to. Uh, but I've just started working in the Flow Research Collective, which is a new organization that myself and Stephen Kotler um, have kind of kicked off since February. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of my primary focus, at least professionally at the moment. And we'll dig into the kind of ins and outs of that a little more, I presume. But we're a research and training organization uh, focused on understanding the neuroscience behind flow state. Mm. Um, and then beyond that, uh, in terms of passions and interests, I'm very lucky to have my primary passions line up very tightly with my kind of professional endeavors, which I think is great um, and is a bit of a gift. But uh, yeah, love living out here in LA and uh, enjoy surfing, BJJ, some kind of flow activities and things like that on yeah, the side. Nice. And uh, yeah, lots else that we'll dig into now, I'm sure. Yeah, no doubt, mate. And um, yeah, you also worked with Stephen Kotler, who yeah. was one of the authors of the book Stealing Fire. Yeah, exactly. So funnily enough, I was a fan of Stevens back in college. Yeah, right. Um, he, the Rise of Superman? Yeah, it was actually, though, it was actually um, 
Bold and Abundance that I'd read of his, which right. are his books that kind of focus on exponential technology, right. uh, which he co-authored with Peter Diamandis. And I've been a fan of him way back, um, I think it was around 20, 2012, 2013, 2014. Yeah. And I followed, um, followed him, added him as a friend on his Facebook page and then kind of uh, listened to him on a lot of podcasts and things like that. A couple of years after that, he just put up a Facebook status um, on his personal Facebook page asking for interns. And so I just kind of shot him a Facebook message uh, saying I was interested. He kind of followed up my, by email and then I did sort of three to four months of kind of intern work that was very mundane as a sort of as his version of an interview, kind of compiling spreadsheets of old articles and things like that. And then we started getting on the phone more frequently and I kind of persisted. And then, yeah, we've been working together now for the last three years. Um, That's amazing. Out of that Facebook status. So, and you've got right. your own story as well, mate. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of interesting, bit. which I'd like to dig into as yeah, well. Yeah, sure, yeah. yeah so that. tell us a little bit about you. Like, where, You're from the UK originally? Uh, I'm from Ireland. Ireland, oh, yeah. I'm so fucking sorry for that. That's like a major thing. Uh, I'm over. Irish, I should know I'll better. I'll forgive you, I'll forgive you. <laughs> you say that now, you're glassing away. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> so born in, the, uh, in Ireland? Born in Ireland, yeah. I was born um, <clears throat> in a, well, I was actually born in a county called Sligo, uh, but then grew up in a county called Mayo on the west of Ireland, so kind of directly over the other side of Ireland to Dublin, uh, in a very sort of rural but nice country area. My parents were from Dublin, uh, so they were sort of blow-ins, we call them. Uh, and then I went to, went to school, so high school in Dublin, uh, and then also went to college in Trinity in Dublin as well. So yeah, right. kind of have a blend of So you really did you growing up there? Well, yeah, I did the, did the childhood growing up in Mayo and then yep. did the kind of teenage growing up in Dublin. And the age kind of 13, of you had a, a, a near-death experience. Yeah, so, um, yeah, or a near fatal accident or however you want to describe it. But uh, I went down a, I was on holidays with my uh, family um, in Croatia before Croatia was kind of in the EU. And in certain respects, it was kind of low on regulation in certain areas. And uh, we were in a water park that was definitely underregulated or just a little bit, a little bit higgly piggly, a little bit dodgy. Uh, and me and my brother were kind of going up and down one of the big sort of 100 foot vertical slides that you see sometimes around here. I'm sure they have some around Santa Monica. And I, um, on one of the turns, went down the slide, tried to do a somersault off the bottom and kind of semi-rotated and hit the top of my head off the concrete bottom of the pool. And the pool was about three foot deep, uh, which was crazy, I think. Um, and yeah, so had a direct impact if my kind of head had been in either an inch forward or back I would have just snapped my neck and died so luckily I was in kind of just this oddly straight rigid position where my neck was kind of perfectly aligned to my head so I didn't break my neck but I absorbed the impact uh, into my kind of back and spine and brain uh, and my skull unfortunately didn't crack if it had the impact would have gone there rather than through the back and neck and spine um, and that accident caused about a six to seven year sort of post head injury malaise, they kind of call it, yeah, where right. you essentially have this like very difficult to pin down set of kind of incoherent symptoms. Uh, so chronic fatigue, blurred vision, kind of total inability to exercise at all for the whole teen years, had to stop surfing and playing rugby and things like that. Um, and that, yeah, that kind of uh, unraveled a whole sort of series of events. That's the age of 13. There. That was 13, yeah. That, so. And obviously that's a really um, important de developmental stage of life. Like that must have had a significant impact on 
on every aspect of your life. Yeah, the, well, the year after it, so 13 to 14, I spent almost the whole year in bed. Right. Watched the whole, uh, which every episode of Friends. <laughs> <laughs> Twice. It was like 24 <laughs> seasons or something like that. So it was that kind of a year. Uh, but it was rough as well. I missed, yeah, I missed more than 50% of school days that year. I was mainly in bed the whole year recovering. Had pretty bad amnesia as well. About three or four months afterwards, I was forgetting the name of my favorite band and forgetting the name of close friends, even months out, which is a really, I don't know if you've ever experienced amnesia like that, but it, it gets, you get into this really aggravated, agitated, sort of scared state. Yeah, I had a it's stroke like in 2009. Yeah, I had a like, 15 second memory. And oh, it was wow. Just, oh, exactly, yeah, man. same kind of thing. So it can be very um, kind of arresting when you just can't, your mm. brain just will not work for you around basic function. Um, so it was tough, yeah, it was super tough for, you know, age 14, and then I moved to school at 15, and that was kind of a rough year, although moving school was a good decision. And again, I was sort of, um, would have to go home a lot on the weekends. It was a boarding school, so I'd have to go home and kind of sleep and recover um, because, yeah, my body just wasn't, wasn't working properly at all. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely challenging. And period. what did it take to get yourself sorted out? Is that what kind of puts you on the mission that you're on now? Yeah, indirectly, yeah. So, I mean... Um, I went to about, I would say about 100 different practitioners from wow. everything you can imagine from the best uh, neurologist in the country, all the way down to, you know, kind of random chiropractors, all the way down to all sorts of, sort of, sorts of you know, kind of quackery or, or just kind of um, different, you know, questionable therapeutic modalities like kinesiology and, and did everything you can imagine. Um, and... Nothing really, I mean, it was a very slow, steady progression. Uh, nothing really moved the needle on the kind of physical symptoms until I actually did psychotherapy at age 17 uh, or 18. I think it was just about 18. And then within a year of the psychotherapy, oddly, a lot of the symptoms cleared up. Wow. And that's, that's not to say that it was um, just psychological, but I presume looking back on that and having kind of looked into the science around that, that there was some kind of psychosomatic mm. uh, component to it or that it was partially you know, caused by psychological issues, even though it was a physiological problem. Um, so it was almost like it was a, 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 a physiological injury that triggered something unconscious. Yeah, uh, supposedly. I mean, there's a book, I don't know if you know the book, The Body Keeps the Score no. by a guy called Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, he's an expert in in trauma and he talks about how when you have trauma in your system, whether that's the result of an accident like I had or early childhood events or whatever the case may be, due to a number of physiological things like, um, you know, kind of excessive cortisol secretion and, um, you know, kind of a massively overreactive nervous system and, and things like that, that you can get these, um, difficult to diagnose physical conditions as a downstream effect of the psychological trauma. Mm. So the whole system's integrated very heavily. And so, I mean, you know, in retrospect, part of me believes now, having looked at his book and looked at a lot of the science around that, that there was probably some kind of psychological uh, component or, or kind of cause for suffering from the physiological or physical symptoms. Yeah, right. Um, and so, yeah, so the psychotherapy ended up pretty much fully clearing it within about a year uh, after you know, five, six years of trying everything under the damn sun. Um, yeah. Wow. And what happened next? Well, at about four, sort of 15, I think, which was kind of the darkest probably year of it, I remember being in a state of just like 
thinking that every week, you know, the symptoms would finally clear and I'd be able to start playing sport and rugby again. And then thinking that, you know, this new doctor that I was going to was finally going to know what the hell is wrong with me and be able to solve it. Uh, and it had been, I think, yeah, maybe the third or almost the fourth year of that kind of uh, process of just like clinging on to the next thing and then assuming and hoping and, you know, praying that around the next, the corner of the next week, it would be resolved. Uh, and so because of it not being resolved through so many kind of um, phases of that. Yeah, it was a dark period for about a year at about 15, 16, I was pretty young. I was actually living on my own in Dublin as well. I wasn't boarding that year, but was still going to school. It's transition year, they call it in Ireland. So it's not really a fully academic year. It's very loose and that lack of routine and kind of structure and holding at that age and living on my own, plus the four years of um, the physical condition weighed in on me pretty significantly and I had sort of bouts of depression and, and challenges mentally in that respect, mental health wise, and then came across a book called Bounce by Matthew Syed. Uh, it's similar to Jeff Colvin's book that uh, I believe it's called Talent is Overrated or The Talent yeah. Myth. It's one of those talent books, debunking talent books. And I read that and um, was just fucking blown away by the notion that talent doesn't exist and actually there's this thing called work and effort and if you do things, things happen. And it was like the kind of installation of a growth mindset and kind of like the discovery of the power of agency. Um, and that book actually was kind of the turning point, at least in terms of my sort of interests and kind of trajectory and things like that professionally. Um, that book kind of like let, let me peek behind the curtain of the fact that, you know, you can kind of, uh, with work and effort and a goal actually decide how life unfolds for you uh, rather than being uh, at the effect of and so you started to implement to changes yeah exactly started to implement changes started to read like crazy got yeah. into a lot of the you know a lot of um the way people get introduced to this whole world and uh the, I think the way a lot of people develop a growth mindset even is through reading things like Tony Robbins and self-help for the first time. Yeah. Curious to, I don't know what your intro was, but there yeah. just seems to be a pal. book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it's super common that I hear that one. <laughs> it's a gateway book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Gateway books. So my gateway book was um, was Bounce. But, uh, but yeah, I started reading like crazy. Started getting my, get my act together academically. I had been all sport and very little academics prior to that and started really kind of doubling down on that side of things and um, performing much better at school and then ended up getting my number one choice in college and things like that. Uh, but that book was definitely the kind of like turning point in terms of um, getting my shit together and starting to kind of uh, want to figure out what I wanted to do long term and getting into personal development and uncovering this whole world. Did you know at this stage that you were going to possibly be doing something in the area of human performance? Yeah. It's or was this kind of like the, the genesis of, of that, that pathway unfolding? Yeah, it was more the genesis. So when you get into self-help, um, a lot of the material, at least that I was encountering, and I think this is pretty common, talks about the um, value or importance of finding your passion. It's like mm -hmm. almost like a self-help trope or cliche that I, at that age, at 15, 16, bought very, very, very heavily into. I was like, the thing I have to do more than anything is like find my passion. And I think in many respects, it's a flawed way of thinking. I don't think there's some like inherent passion that you kind of brush the dirt off of and just discover. I think you build and create and develop a passion. But at the time, that's what I believed and that's what I was reading about. And so my kind of main big mission was to like find my passion. And uh, so I tried my hand at all sorts of different things. I 
did forex trading in school at 16, thinking I wanted to go and become an investment banker. I did legal internships in Dublin at 15, 16. I remember walking around Dublin um, with <laughs> this shitty like seven page CV that I'd written up and printed off, knocking on doors, trying to get internships and stuff like that to see if I wanted to do different things. I had a network marketing or multi-level marketing um, gig for about seven months. Uh, and that's a funny industry, very much so. Um, and interned in lots of different startups, all sorts of different things. And then at about 20, uh, or maybe it was 19, um, I was kind of looking back at maybe the 20, it was literally like 20 to 30 different internships and odd jobs and attempts at startups and stuff like that, trying to essentially analyze for the common denominators and see what the underlying consistent patterns were and what I enjoyed. And that's something that Stephen kind of talks about and teaches people how to do. Um, and I realized that the thing that I liked and appreciated and was passionate about that was common to all of those different specific endeavors was the human potential piece or the peak performance piece or the whole notion around the fact that you can go into any industry and if you implement certain practices and protocols and habits and behaviors and mindsets, you can level up your performance and kind of rise much more quickly to the top of any industry. So that was the thing that I realized that I had liked amidst all of those different things was focusing on my own performance and analyzing others within those different areas through that lens of peak performance. Yeah, right. So that's kind of how I came across that. And this is at the age of 19, 20? Uh, 19, yeah. How old are you now? 23. Okay, right. So this yeah, is just okay. one that long ago. <laughs> wow, right. And so that, this is around the time when you had you'd read um, Stephen's book. What was the first book? Yeah, exactly. Was? Exactly. It was around that time. What uh, was bold. 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 Yep. Yeah, bold. So it's a great book with, by, yeah. And what was it about Stephen's work that made you want to hunt him down and add him, even add him as a friend on Facebook? It was the the title uh, of Bold, or the subtitle of Bold, which is, uh, God, I'm going to mess it up now, what is it? How to Create Wealth, Go Big, and Impact the World. It's, yeah. some, it's something like that. It's three big statements like that. And I just remember reading the title and being like, fuck, that's the I best want that. subtitle I've ever seen. Yeah, I want that. Um, yeah, I think it's How to Go Big, something like that. But uh, it was the title that like I remember reading it and being like, damn. That's not what I want. It's good copywriting. It got me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I remember that, and then and then I listened to him on um, Bulletproof Radio, Dave Asprey's yeah. podcast, talking about flow state. <laughs> at about, I think I was still in school at the time, maybe eighteen. I must have been because I remember uh, being blown away by this idea of five hundred percent increase in productivity and the whole notion of like altering your state of consciousness rather than learning a skill, and the fact that you don't need to take any substances to achieve this. And, I remember, and then I, I remember listening to him and thinking, oh, I've probably experienced this as well at times, so it's obviously real. And then I remember kind of like describing flow state to friends in school in Ireland and getting getting slagged for it as you do in Ireland with anything. <laughs> um, so that was, yeah, that was my intro, like introduction to kind of flow science and positive psychology as well. And so then you hunt, you, you hunt Steve down on Facebook, you add him as a friend. Yeah. And then it was not long thereafter he um, posted the opportunity for an internship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had this habit of, so I was so kind of obsessed with finding my passion and then kind of like. You sound like you're obsessed with internships. I've never met anyone yeah, who's so many. Yeah, That's amazing. I, I must have done, oh God, I'd love to, I must count it up. But I think uh, if you include all of them, even the short ones, it must have been about 
30. That's uh, amazing. In a few years. Yeah, I would do oftentimes, it'd be like two, one or two or even three at periods kind of doing it once. I, I think that's fucking brilliant. Them. You know, because a lot of people, when they come out of school, they don't know what they want to do. Yeah. And they, come, and they ask, well, what do I do? I don't know what my passion is. And I'm like, go to fucking Baskin Robbins. Eat every yeah, flavor right, in exactly, the shop. Exactly. And find out what you like. And that's the best advice ever, yeah. I think. I mean, I think a very effective way of, of figuring out what you want to do is just crossing out things that you don't mm. want to do. And that, that inherently kind of narrows your focus. Uh, and then, in addition, when you start like looking for the common denominators, um, yeah, then you can kind of start to hone in on it. And Stephen has, if anyone's who's uh, listening is interested, Stephen has a practice called the Passion Recipe, and you can download it on his website. And it's really effective; just very simple exercise where you essentially kind of identify 25 different areas of interest or curiosities, and then you look for the common denominators, and then he has you do a number of things, like learning around those interests, and then actually sort of doing what you're saying, kind of playing at those different intersections, so as to be able to identify the common denominators. And What's that called? Hone it down, the passion recipe. The passion recipe. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. on his website. Yeah, it's on his website. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Yeah, okay, powerful, cool. Yeah. And so he gives you the internship, and you start interning from from Dublin. Yeah, I was interning from Dublin for I was inter I was doing God, I was doing a few different internships at the time. I was um, interning from Dublin for him. I think I was uh, God, what the hell else was I doing? I was trying to get a master's in applied positive psychology with Martin Seligman. Um, so this is at that time you your paths cross cross with Seligman. Yeah, well, no, I didn't actually cross paths with them, but I I had as my main goal at that point to do a master's in applied positive psychology in the University of Pennsylvania here um, to study this whole subject and area. Um, And so I I think I was focusing on that primarily and trying to like do internships to flesh out my CV to be able to get that master's and then ended up working with Stephen and not even needing the... uh, not even needing the master's, funnily enough, and then I'm now doing a master's in neuroscience, but that kind of came about afterwards, so I kind of got the you know, end result that I was looking for after the master's, before the master's, which right. was great. And at some point you were actually mentored by Dan, is that right? By Dan Siegel? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Dan I met... Actually, Sorry, Siegel, not Seligman, my apologies. Oh yeah, no worries. Yeah. No, yeah. So Dan Siegel, um, I met Dan Siegel here in 2016. I was yep. um, here with a few friends for kind of a fun college summer. Uh, and that actually would have been before connecting with Stephen. I connected with Stephen about five months after that. and. Um, yeah, uh, met Dan at a conference literally 200 meters up the road from where we're sitting right now in Santa Monica. Wow. Um, and then, uh, yeah, had an amazing experience with him and, and kind of joined a research group with him and learned a lot from him as well. He's another great figure in the, more in the trauma space, um, but I suppose in this whole world overall as well. Yeah, right. So. And so at what point did you realize you wanted to pack all your gear up and, and move to a, the US of A? Um, it was around, well, I wanted to, for a while, but then I, I wasn't able to until um, really just December, actually. December just gone. Right. I'd be kind of back and forth a little bit here and there, coming yep. to some events and conferences and, and stuff like that. Um, but I was sort of doing the kind of digital nomad lifestyle a little bit for about a year um, before coming out here, living in different countries, traveling and working and things like that, um, which is fun. And then, um, yeah, got kind of fully based out of here as of uh, sort of December or so. And you're down in Venice now? Yeah, yeah. just down the road, yeah. And uh, now actually working full time and you found it and you were involved with Steve Kotler in the Flow Collective project. Yeah, so it was the Flow, well, it was the Flow Genome project originally, yep. that's kind of what I started working in right. and then working with Jamie as well and learned a ton from both of them. And then, um, yeah, then we kind of um, transitioned out into a new organization called the Flow Research Collective. Yeah. Uh, just focusing more on flow research and kind of the evidence-based peak performance and flow. So it's really the substance behind stealing fire. 
Uh, it's more the substance actually behind Rise of Superman. I would right. Say. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's more our, our kind of current organization and the sort of methodology and approach and background that we use has come more out of Stephen's research for Rise of Superman. Yeah, right. Fire, yeah. But you're also very familiar with, with the, the Stealing Fire, the work that's been done. In yeah, the- I love that book. That was my kind of gateway drug book um, in many respects to actually trying to work with Stephen. So I, I became a fan of him through right. Bold and then um, read Stealing Fire, listened to him and Jamie on loads of podcasts and was just like, these are the coolest coolest guys ever and uh, yeah so I remember listening to that at the start of working because that book for me was a that was a, a a big game changer like I've been into human performance for about 20 years and you know over time you start to you sift you yeah. sieve right. you, and you start to remove the dirt and you start to find the gold and when I found Stealing Fire I was like wow this really is you know, an, ingre- an incredible example of the sum total of where we're at from an understanding of how mm. to access flow, you know, looking at technology, looking at mysticism, and also looking yeah. at pharmacology and, and the potential that all three of those have. Because mm. when we look at what flow is, and again, I think it's important to create some kind of a baseline here. For people who are listening to this, like, what, what is flow? Yeah, it's a good kind of question to start with, especially in relation to stealing fire. So flow at the kind of broadest level or least descriptive level is a, what's Stan Graf calls a non-ordinary state of consciousness. So a state of consciousness that's kind of, you know, other than what we experience normally day to day in kind of waking state. Um, But more specifically, the term refers to those moments of kind of total absorption and rapt attention where you're totally focused on the task or whatever activity it is that you're doing uh, at any given time. Um, And in that state, oftentimes people experience time dilating. Uh, So, you know, minutes go by in what feels like hours, or hours go by in what feels like minutes, depends on kind of what activity you're doing. Um, And throughout that state, and there's a ton of research to back this up, performance, mental and physical, goes through the roof. So um, there's a lot of research which we can kind of walk through a little bit of later. But, um, yeah, so there's kind of the... uh, I suppose, multiple different angles to come at describing flow because oftentimes people ask, well, you know, what is a state of consciousness in the first place? And so there's usually kind of the, you know, the qualitative aspect or like what the state feels like, which is the description of flow as that sense of being, you know, sucked into whatever it is that you're doing with time flying by and everything else fading off and your kind of inner critic or the inner voice that you normally have going offline and going quiet. And then there's the um, more reductionistic ways of looking at a state of consciousness or looking at the correlates to it, like the kind of uh, neuroanatomical signature of flow. So, you know, what's going on actually in the brain when you're in that state. Uh, And Stephen often talks about things like transient hyperfrontality in relation to that. Mm -hmm. Transient hyperfrontality is when the prefrontal cortex, which is the sort of front part of your brain that does a lot of the cognitive tasks, um, goes... uh, quieter or you know activity there decreases and that's why you get that sense of selflessness uh, and then you can look at a state of consciousness or you can look at flow from you know also a neuroelectrical standpoint as well and that looks at kind of what the brainwave signature of flow is um, and then you can also look at it from a neurochemical standpoint as well which so these are just different ways of like sort of defining what a state of consciousness is it's kind of the experience of it the you know brain chemistry, the brainwave signature, the you know neuroanatomical signature, et cetera, et cetera. But most people will you know resonate with it and be able to understand what we're talking about in relation to flow when they yeah. think of the description of it um, experientially. So because it feels like when you look at the the, the history of performance or the and even because I think the history of the study of performance and personal development they're very intrinsically linked in many respects. Mm-hmm. 
And what I find really interesting is when you look at the history of performance, you know, even starting back at, with psychocybernetics, you know, that was one of yeah. my, my first books uh, yeah. understanding of understanding the, the impacts of psychology. You know, it, it seems like all of this work around performance, all of this research, all of this development was kind of leading us to the point to discover what flow is. At what point did science actually give the label to this state to go, oh, this is what we've been searching for? Because mm. up until then, I just assumed people, we're just trying to increase productivity. We're just trying to perform at a higher right. level. And then all of a sudden, we now have this label that we apply to this state. What was the, the moment where that, that kind of shifted and we identified, wow, this is actually what we're after? It's a great question. And Stephen's obsessed with that question. So Stephen's a big, big fan of the history of high performance. And he actually mm. teaches the history of high performance. Oh, and he, yeah, yeah, he's done some. You are so blessed. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> yeah, he's done some incredibly fascinating primary research around the history of high performance. So Stephen reads like nothing I've ever, ever seen before. And he was going back only about a year ago, like with me. So he, I was getting these downloads in kind of real time and seeing him build it into a training. But just to go all the way back, it, he, he dates it back, or he dates kind of the first like formal use of a word to describe that state back to Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, the philosopher. Um, and so Nietzsche talked about it as Rausch was the term he used, R-A-U-S-C-H. Uh, and Nietzsche talks about it as this kind of, um, you know, state of heightened energy and focus and rejuvenation that's brought on oftentimes during creative endeavors. Uh, and it's very obvious when you look at like Nietzsche's description of flow and like the current day description of what it feels like that they're talking about the, the exact same, same thing. thing. Yeah, for sure. And then William James, um, who came after Nietzsche, uh, who's the uh, founder of modern psychology, as we know in the West, um, talked about flow in different ways. Again, indirectly, didn't kind of have one specific term for it, but there's lots of descriptions of what is very obviously flow in his books, like uh, one book, The um, Varieties of Religion Experience, Religious Experience. Uh, he talks about it in that. And then the guy who actually, who most people know and who, you know, people will have probably seen a lot of kind of memes and quote memes and things like that around flow with is a Hungarian psychologist called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And mm -hmm. he was the guy who actually coined the term flow in an academic context um, back in the 1960s. Wow. Um, so it's sort of since then that we've had a term for it within academia. And it sounds like such a um, flow. And flow is just such yeah, a soft, exactly. easy. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. so soft and easy and it's sort of automatopoeic. And it, oftentimes I joke that it's a little bit like, you know, the way people use the word energy or alignment or manifestation. People just kind of throw these terms into like different contexts and have different meanings for them. But flow is actually a technical term. So Stephen always jokes uh, that when people ask him, like, what's your definition of flow, that he's like, I don't have, it's not, it's not about my definition of flow, it's about what flow actually is what defined actually, as in the yeah, literature, right. yeah. So that's, I mean, if you look at, yeah, if you look at a lot of the, the papers around, um, you know, the neuroscience of flow, they still use the word yeah. flow, which is kind of interesting, but yeah. One of the things I find really curious, like, to me, the flow state, it's, it's, the, it's the peak of performance, it's mm -hmm. the peak of human performance in terms of our ability to express a potential. Um, it's where we are most productive, most effective, most efficient. You know, it's, it's where we obviously do our best work. And so for me, I'm, I almost sit back and I look at the rest of the world, especially, you know, corporate America, corporate Australia, the corporate world in general, yeah. governments. And I'm like, why isn't there a much greater obsession with this information that we have? And it's 
actual implementation in a practical way, mm. you know, from school all the way through to, you know, working life and even in government. Because mm. what I've discovered is that there seems to be pockets of obsession. Yeah. You know, Silicon Valley is a great example. Yeah. You know, a, that's a really strong pocket of obsession around identifying and creating flow states. But it hasn't seemed to have created this, because it is, to me, it is almost like this, it is a, almost a drug-like experience. You know, mm. there are people saying, if we could pop a pill, you know, that's where microdosing has right. become quite popular. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we'd like to get there. But I'm curious, for your perspective, why do you think that we don't, as a society, have more of an interest in like creating flow states or teaching people how to access these flow states, you know, from an earlier age? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, I mean, one thing I think is that it's much easier across the board to look at outputs rather than inputs or what creates those outputs. So people care more about the bottom line or they care more about a deliverable within a workplace or they care more about, you know, um, whatever the kind of quantifiable objective performance of their organization is. Uh, and they oftentimes, I think, just in general, as a very kind of broad sweeping thing, look less at, you know, inputs or what is creating those outputs. Um, and so I think from that perspective, there's just more of a focus on output rather than input. Um, and flow, obviously, is something that increases and improves output. Um, so I think in many respects, it's literally just the kind of um, imbalance of the emphasis and attention that outputs across the board get um, is one reason. Are you seeing a shift? Um, I think, yeah. I mean, It I seems think, to be slow, though. Yeah, I think people do realize, even like there was that whole big wave of mindfulness becoming extremely popular. Uh, and oftentimes the way you justify a focus on a new thing like mindfulness or flow state or employee engagement is by tying it very tightly to outputs mm. um, or the things that people can like justify caring about, especially within a business and corporate context. Um, you know, if it has no bottom line impact uh, in one way or another, then it's difficult to justify really kind of prioritizing it because, mm. it, you know, fundamentally businesses are, are the entities that are supposed to produce a profit and make money. Um, but that's to me, that's the crux of it. Because if you've got your workforce who are able to maintain flow states that are more consistently, you're going to have greater output, you're going to have greater rev greater productivity, you're going to have greater revenue, you're going to be more profitable. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So a lot of, I mean, a lot of the smartest organizations realize that. And that's, yeah. you know, when you talk about progressive organizations, yeah. I think oftentimes one of the things um, fundamentally, the progressive organizations are good at doing is having a very clear understanding of cause and effect or of what inputs are causing their outputs. And that's why they invest so heavily in learning and development. And that's why they have, you know, rooms for their employees to be able to go and do mindfulness. And that's why they have gyms and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because they understand that doing these things is going to improve employee performance and thus improve the goals that they you know, kind of not really care about because that's cynical, but the goals that they ultimately have to achieve as yeah. well, which are, you know, financial. Uh, so I think there is a shift, but in terms of going back to your overall question, another reason I think with flow specifically is that, you know, it's a very kind of esoteric or like vague or ephemeral thing. It's difficult to kind of uh, get a sort of rapid understanding of what it even is. And as a result of that, it's also then difficult to get, you know, kind of broad scale or mainstream appreciation for it because people mention flow and it's like this state of consciousness and it's just sort of a... a, a but when you give the definition or the description, I, that's I, true. I, most people would go, oh yeah, I, under, I know what that yeah. is. Well, that's a good point, and that's what I always try and do when explaining to people yeah. is, is describe it, describe what the experience is like, and then have people kind of, you know, even think back to an experience they've had like that themselves, which yeah. everyone has had an experience of flow. 
Then another challenge is kind of making the case that you can actually train it or improve it yeah. um, and increase the you know ab- increase people's ability to get into it. Um, and that's kind of one uh, in terms of you know what we're doing with the organization at the moment. That's sort of I often describe that you know before being able to do any of our trainings or even really understanding what we do, you have to kind of undergo a paradigm shift in understanding that your state of consciousness is something that you have control over and that you actually can, Mm. I don't necessarily like the word hack, but that you can um, do actions and protocols and habits and behaviors that are going to cause or create a certain state of consciousness. So that could well, be too much responsibility for some people. Yeah, well, that yeah. Could, I mean, that could be partly it, and that's oftentimes why certain people have a negative reaction to self-help as well, because yeah. it, there's a there's inherent accountability about accepting that things are the way they are, because then it's your choice if you're not happy with your life, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, in terms of in terms of that sort of paradigm shift, the way I often describe it is that you know you need to essentially understand that this you know, kind of ephemeral, elusive state of consciousness that often just kind of happens to us and comes about randomly through things that we don't necessarily uh, have full awareness over or control over or choice over is actually something that you can, you know, kind of reliably recreate on demand with consistency. So it goes from, it goes from like elusive and kind of out of your control into something that is like the gym and something that you actually, you know, you know that if you do four workouts a week and kind of track your weights for progressive overload, you're going to achieve a certain outcome. And it's the same kind of shift that we want to have for people with flow state is that you can do certain things that are going to produce more flow in your life. And that's what I loved about Stealing Fire. Like it really broke it down. I said, okay, there are, you know, there are essentially three categories we can look at in order to increase the probability of a flow state. We can look yeah. at technology. And I found that really fascinating, um, especially to the, the discussion around the God helmet. Yeah, uh, and the technology around that is there. Are we starting to see more technology coming through? And I guess, do you have much familiarity with the God helmet or anything? Yeah, so the God helmet is based on neurofeedback. Yeah, um, and in terms of you know smart tech or transformational tech or trans tech as it's often called, um, I well that's one of the areas that I'm actually most excited to see evolve over the coming decade or two because there's a ton of trans tech or transformational technology. But there's not many, you know, wearables or smart tech devices that are really, really effective yet. But they're all kind of on the cusp. So the Trans Tech Conference, actually, which is run by a friend of Stevens, uh, who's a client of ours, and Nicole Bradford, is actually in LA here in November, mid-November. And so that'll be sort of a, a chance for all of the different organizations and companies who are focusing on building transformational technology to display what they have. But I think it's more... Uh, I think the wave is kind of just beginning on that side and that we haven't yet really seen the um, the wearables and the and the devices and technologies that you can use in everyday life consistently to have a really significant impact. Like the way I often describe it, and it goes actually, in many respects, I feel the same way about a lot of supplements. You know, 30 minutes more of really good quality sleep is gonna make more of a difference than most supplements, and at the moment, make more of a difference than most sort of smart tech devices, I, mm. at least for me, I think, and that's not a, I can't make right, that exactly exactly meditation. Yeah, th- exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like the, the amount more benefit you get from focusing on you know, nutrition, uh, stress management, exercise, and sleep is 
you know, you're, 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 in most cases, you're much better off going from you know, 80% on point in one of those four categories to 90% on point in one of those four categories than introducing a new category of you know, mm. kind of obscure supplementation or some kind of new you know, transformational technology. If you eat a little bit better, sleep a little bit better, it's probably going to make more of a difference. And until you're you know, kind of 100 out of 100 or 10 out of 10 on those four categories, um, I think you're going to get more bang for buck by focusing on those four. Are, are we seeing any trans tech that is coming through that is able to mimic the effects of the God Helmet? Because what I found fascinating, because the God Helmet, my understanding is it's an apparatus you put on your head, yeah, and it delivers an electromagnetic pulse to um, the frontal lobes, yeah, and it offsets the conscious mind. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, and that's it, the neurofeedback is the technology that un- underscores that. Right. And neurofeedback actually has been around. For since the 90s, mm-hmm. uh, and so you may have heard of 40 Years of Zen, yep. uh, which is Dave Asprey's kind of uh, course that he does. It's actually also based on neurofeedback. Uh, so neurofeedback is this kind of technology that uh, essentially um, gives the body or mind inputs um, to kind of create an effect outside of conscious awareness. So that can come through a different number of different ways and it's kind of would fall under the term biofeedback. Right. So you're giving your body feedback to create an effect. Um, and oftentimes with neurofeedback, it can literally be, you know, it can be visuals, it can be beeping sounds, um, but you can change the way in which your brain's um, neuroelectrical state uh, is over time through neurofeedback. And I mean, as far as our kind of stance on it at the Flow Research Collective, we're still somewhat sort of juries out on it. There's some compelling research around it, and it's been around for a while, um, but we're not yet sure if it's really, really significant for long-term change. Um, A lot of people talk about it as very beneficial in terms of trauma uh, and healing and recovering from trauma, but... It's definitely, it's another one of the modalities that you can use and a lot of people rave about it and there is research behind it and it, I, I do believe it definitely has some legitimacy. Mm. Um, but we're not, you know, our training, for example, isn't like neurofeedback's not at the forefront of it. It's not at that yeah. level for us at least. Yeah, right. we found it the second area that I found quite interesting was, was actually looking historically at mysticism and how mysticism has been used um, unwittingly in many respects in order to, you know, produce these states. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think Jamie and Stephen did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. Um, I think people actually almost underestimate how, how great a job they did of identifying the underlying similar characteristics mm. of all non-ordinary states of consciousness, mm. which they have in their model STIR. Um, and those, those characteristics are selflessness, um, so again, that thing that I described in terms of flow, where you're kind of inner critic or that inner dialogue or that voice, that nagging defeatist voice, as Stephen often describes it, inside your head, goes offline. And so you become fully present and your, your, your sort of monkey mind, or however, however you want to describe it, goes offline or quietens down. So selflessness, timelessness, which we talked about a little bit as well, which is time dilation, um, that, can, that also occurs and is common to all non-ordinary states of consciousness. Time feels different or passes differently to how it normally does. Um, effortlessness is the third characteristic that's common to all non-ordinary states of consciousness. Um, and effortlessness is that sense that you are not in you know, the grind, you're not having to force 
whether it's um, you know, focus, you don't have to force yourself to pay attention, say in a flow state, or if you're in some other non-ordinary state of consciousness, like a psychedelic state, you may not happen to be like force uh, a creative breakthrough or force ideas to come out. They just, there's this kind of common characteristic of effortlessness um, within all non-ordinary states of consciousness. And then the fourth one is uh, richness, which stands for information richness. Um, and that essentially refers to the amount of information that you're able to take in from the external environment and from your own, you know, uh, physiology and process at any given time. So with flow, looping it back to flow, um, a, a Stanford neuroscientist called David Eagleman talks about flow as an efficiency exchange. So rather than uh, like in, you know, the Limitless movie, the, the notion being that you are turning on 100% of your brain and normally we only use 10% of our brain. Actually, we believe the exact opposite is happening. So there's an efficiency exchange that's occurring where parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex that we mentioned, are, are going offline and deactivating. And in return, we get an increase in information processing, which causes the information richness. So with flow, we can you know, consume and take in more information at any given moment and more effectively synthesize it and process it and kind of churn out the results that we want. And that's why you get the, the kind of increase in creativity or pattern recognition, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of the fourth characteristic of non-ordinary states of consciousness is information richness. Mm. And that shows up, again, differently in, term, in different states. So, for example, again, in a psychedelic state, it might be that the whole environment feels incredibly rich and that you're noticing colors you never noticed before, whatever the case may be. But uh, selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness are what Jamie and Stephen in Stealing Fire said are the sort of four common characteristics to all non-ordinary states of consciousness. And then just to wrap, um, the just to clarify as well, you know, so as I mentioned at the start, flow is one non-ordinary state of consciousness, but there are multiple different kinds of non-ordinary states of mm. consciousness. There are meditative states, there are trance states, there are psychedelic states, uh, even there are awe states. So awe is something that's talked about a lot within the positive psychology literature. Um, and then there are obviously also loads of... Um, you know, maladaptive non-ordinary states of consciousness like schizophrenia as well. Um, and what S Stephen and Jamie did, again, that was so brilliant in Stealing Fire, was they said, it looks like, first of all, people are constantly trying to get into one of these different non-ordinary states of consciousness. And then secondly, these non-ordinary states of consciousness that people are anyway, without really being fully aware of it, trying to jack themselves into, allow for massive increases in performance um, and productivity and heightened, you know, inspiration, creativity, motivation, recovery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they said um, that these things can actually be used proactively and consciously with the awareness that you are trying to alter your state to improve your results across, you know, a whole spectrum of different areas. In the areas of mysticism that they, they found that were of most benefit, one of the, one of the biggest one was meditation, wasn't it? Because they were looking at what were the what were the different areas of mysticism that they, they they looked at? Yeah, so they looked at well, I mean, so neurotheology is the study of you know kind of the um, so well you know, the simplest way to describe it is that neurotheology reduces down mystical states, um, so a state that you know someone may experience within a religious context or mm -hmm. a spiritual context like enlightenment or. Um, or something like that down to um, 
its kind of subcomponents, which usually are uh, physiological, or at least there are physiological correlates to these mystical states. So yeah, in, in Stealing Fire, I mean, they talk about the fact that, you know, Andy Newberg's work um, on enlightenment, um, and actually Nicole Bradford, who I mentioned as well, has done a lot of work with Jeffrey Martin around that, has a, um, has a neurophysiological correlate. So there's this state of enlightenment, which feels a certain way, um, but then we can actually say, oh, in the brain, enlightenment is this, 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 and this, and in the body, enlightenment is this, 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 and this. Um, and so that was kind of the, you know, the fundamental sort of shift that they were trying to create was that you've got all these different states, many of which are occurring within religious experiences. Uh, and they, it, it doesn't take away the mystical nature of the state. They still feel mystical, but there is just a correlation between that mystical state and different things that we can actually identify within the brain and body. And the third area, which I, th I found fascinating, and it really sent me on my own journey, no pun intended, was in the area of um, pharmacology mm. and how we can actually use certain substances in order to you know, increase the probability of, of dropping into flow states. Mm. Um, and that kind of opened up for me, not so much a, bar uh, a can of worms, but a whole range of information that I was completely unaware of. Like I started to, you know, really look into the origins and the develop and how Silicon Valley came to become Silicon Valley. Mm. And there's a lot of really interesting stories floating around out there. But one of the things that I found really fascinating and quite interesting is, is how psychedelics have actually been used historically, you know, since the 60s, mm. you know, not just as a psychotherapeutic tool, you know, to, to heal, but it was also, you know, I think it was Albert Hoffman that used to take, you know, 10 micrograms of, of, of LSD mm. every day because he, was a, he became conscious of the fact that it increased his ability to do his work at a, mm. at a much higher level. When did psychedelics actually start to, you know, creep into mainstream um, corporate psychology, or has it been there the whole time? It's just been stealth. I think no. I, th I mean, I think so. There was the kind of the original psychedelic renaissance in the sixties, yeah, and that involved a lot of the guys that you hear about, like uh, Timothy Tim Leary, Leary and uh, Terence McKenna, and John Lilly, who invented flotation devices, um, and a lot of those kind of hardcore psychedelic advocates in the sixties, and then around uh, Reagan's presidency with Nancy Reagan's kind of you know, huge sort of anti-drug narrative. A lot of that research got shut down. A lot of the popularity of it after the 60s movement kind of got, you know, squashed and, and squandered and kind of dissipated. And it's only been in the last decade, I would say, uh, that we've had sort of the resurgence both in terms of psychedelic research, um, but then also, I think it's fair to say, in terms of psychedelic usage as well. Mm. And I, I would say that... Um, I would kind of speculate that it's it's more just in the last maybe 10 years within certain pockets around the world that are yeah. just hyper-progressive and hyper-performance orientated, like Silicon Valley is a great example, where psychedelics specifically have, have, have kind, of, um, kind of snuck their way into corporate culture. But they definitely have, that's for sure. I mean, I, the amount of entrepreneurs and CEOs and high-level executives I know that do ayahuasca very frequently is, you know, amazing it like well, it's become like a popular. thing ayahuasca yeah. parties you know it's yeah, yeah, yeah you know people traveling to south america people bringing in shamans yeah you know and you know i think ayahuasca you know is has one as is one thing that provides incredible hope from a as a therapeutic tool as well 
but it seems to me now, you know, even breaking away from, because um, what I find interesting is psychedelics have been around for millennia. We've been mm. using them throughout history for, to be able to treat ourselves for a whole range of different, everything from mental issues to addiction, mm. um, and even, I'm going to assume unwillingly for p- performance issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's almost like ayahuasca has kind of given us permission to start looking at it again. Mm. Does, does this make sense? This is just a perspective, by the way, as well. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, ayahuasca is one that I hear talked about the most, I would say, from within a, from people who are in the kind of more business side of things, yes. for whatever reason. Um, Seems to be more kosher. Yeah, it does a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, the idea of, yeah, it, it for sure does, actually. I mean, I even, I was at Burning Man a couple of weeks ago, which was fun. How was and, that? Uh, yeah, it was great. It was great. I was in a great capital, sorts of amazing folks. And uh, one of the guys who was a very high level um, exec, uh, talks very openly and freely about the fact that he has done ayahuasca many times and has benefited from it enormously, but actually has a very negative perception of LSD, which was interesting to me. Yeah, so I think there's definitely, for for whatever reason, I don't know why, ayahuasca has kind of like proliferated in ahead. Maybe it's because, I think one one reason actually, maybe because you can't really do ayahuasca without um, it being intentional and premeditated and planned for and integrated after and recovered from you know you're not going to do ayahuasca at a house party that doesn't happen with it so it can't really get tired of the negative brush in the same way that a lot of the other more freely available psychedelics can like lsd or psilocybin but in many respects i see the way ayahuasca is treated as the benchmark of how, of how all psychedelics should be treated because yeah you know, to well, me, yeah. even yeah. if i'm doing an lsd journey or a psilocybin yeah. journey i treat it like an ayahuasca journey it's a three-day process yeah it's been a day preparing getting clear setting the intentions you know the day of the journey you know, where you're doing the work, and then the next day where you're, you know, you're, you're, you're journaling and, and, and yeah. pulling out whatever, what comes from it. Yeah, exactly. So a good friend of mine, a um, guy called Dr. Jack Aloka, who's a neuropsychopharmacologist actually out of the University of Melbourne. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, which is funny. Uh, he says that kind of, you know, the master value when it comes to using psychedelics is intentionality. And mm. uh, even if your intention is to have fun yeah, <laughs> and true. nothing else, yeah. you still need to have intentionality about it. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's very wise uh, advice for sure. Because, I mean, they, they, you know, they can be very dangerous substances as well. They and, can be incredibly yeah. dangerous. And I think that needs to be highlighted because I think if we look at where we went wrong in the, the Renaissance period, yeah. you know, with Timothy Leary, you know, really almost, and I've I, I got to give credit where it's true, he did a lot of incredible work, but he also bastardized the brand of LSD, you know, yeah. psilocybin by the way that it was brought to market and it, yeah. it wasn't with a level of respect. Um, and I think we, we need to, for this third wave coming through, I think there needs to be a much higher level of responsibility, a much greater awareness. Is, you know, this isn't a, you know, as I said, everyone, this isn't a party drug. You know, you, I don't know about you, but you can take, you know, some of these substances rec- recreationally, but if you're looking for entheogenic, you know, benefit and healing, you know, mm-hmm. psychotherapeutic healing, that shit's not fun. Yeah. You know, you don't take ayahuasca for, sh- for shits and giggles. You, know, yeah. you don't do a high dose LSD for shits and giggles. You're doing that because you have an intention to, you know, to, to heal, uh, you know, some form of trauma or wound. And I think, yeah, I think there needs to be a, a much greater level of respect on this third renaissance if, if we're to, if it's to survive this period. Definitely, yeah. So Timothy Leary's um, sort of motto or, or slogan was tune in, turn on and drop out. Um, so it was like inherently rebellious mm. um, and counterculture. And then uh, Rick Doblin, who I was actually got the uh, pleasure to hang out with quite a bit at Burning Man a couple of weeks ago, his, um, he's the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association oh, wow. of Psychedelic Studies, who's doing most of the kind of advocacy work. 
um, around getting kind of psychedelic treatments, um, FDA approved and things like that. Uh, and his motto and approach has been pretty much the opposite to Leary's, which is, um, well, actually, the way Jamie's described it is kind of dress straight and infiltrate. Um, <laughs> I like it. Is to, is to make them mainstream, make yeah. them accepted, you know, embed them within small communities in middle America because of the massive benefit they can have to people in those communities like war veterans who are struggling with PTSD mm. or whatever. So he takes a be- the opposite of that approach rather than being like, you know, fuck the system and fuck society. It's like, how can we integrate these things into society to make, you know, our current society even more functional? There's so much power there. Like I, I um, had PTSD and I resolved it after two, um, one high dose LSD, one high dose wow. psilocybin uh, and an MDA talk therapy session. Wow. Totally resolved. Jesus. Have not been free of like the, 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 the panic attack, wow. you know, triggered PTSD since the age of 15. God. You know, to the point where, like, I just, I used to think, well, this is just how my life's going to be. My heart's yeah. always going to be jumping out of its skin. Yeah. I'm never going to feel completely normal. And now to get to walk into any social situation and just have this great, because I used to suffer from severe social anxiety, mm. you know, even as a confident, you know, entrepreneur and successful yeah. businessman, I'd still, it was still there. Yeah. And now it's just like, it's like, fuck, it's just completely resolved. And I, I literally sit there going, oh my God, <laughs> why, why did it take, you know, why did yeah. it take us so long? Yeah. You know, I did years of talk therapy, you know, done the EDMR, not to say it wasn't beneficial, it was all very helpful. But you know, we're talking within a matter of four weeks. Yeah, on, completely yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Like to me, it was, deal, it was yeah. a major milestone yeah. in my life for me because yeah. I always saw it as as a, as a massive. Um, I just thought there was just something wrong with me, and I just couldn't fix yeah. it. Yeah, all God. the meditation in the world, like it would it would die down. But then there'd be some. All it would take anything that would push on a value yeah. that was of a, a significant, you know, it pressure. Just, yeah. It just triggered it, and yeah. I'd be in a high heart rate, high anxiety, high panic state for days. On the inside, on the outside, I look cool as a fucking cucumber. Yeah. But on the inside, I was being torn up inside. God. It's amazing. That it it that is. It is. But I, and as I said, but I think we need to be very, very conscious of of how we bring this back. But it also opens up, you know, another conversation as well around not just the macro use of psychedelics, but also the micro use of psychedelics, which is probably more more appropriate to the conversation around flow states. One of the things that I noticed when I first did ayahuasca, uh, I did ayahuasca uh, for the first time. I think it was about ten years ago. Um, I noticed in the days afterwards, the, the afterglow, mm. which, you know, from my younger days of LSD, um, that was more in the rave scene. I, I never had the afterglow because it was normally a hangover that was associated mm-hmm. with, with, with the, the, the rave that I'd been at the night before. And I experienced this afterglow. I was like, wow, my mental clarity is really sharp. Right. My brain's working really the well. My mood's really elevated. And yeah, yeah. And then over a period of time, you know, you just, your baseline goes back to yeah. normal. Yeah. And then a red stealing fire. And I was like, right, PTSD. You know, I was like, wow, there's so much here for me to be able to do. And I started doing my own psychotherapeutic work with, mm. with the substances. Um, and it was at that point I started to go, okay, there, there is something here, but I would like to experience this ongoing. Like yeah. I'd like to have this, not the experience of being high, yeah. but the experience of being able to feel like, wow, the colors look amazing today. Wow, the sounds, how good does music sound? Yeah. You know, and to be able to also be thinking and having a conversation to drop in and go, wow, that just came out so easily. Mm. Um, and that's where microdosing came in. And I started originally microdosing with LSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've done a number of protocols with LSD and, and psilocybin now. And I gotta tell you, especially as someone who is, um, you know, who is dedicated, obsessed with high performance and as someone who you know, regularly stands on stage in front of hundreds of thousands of spe- people to speak, I was blown away at my ability to just 
drop into flow mm. within seconds. Mm. Whereas once upon a time when I do a speech, for example, I'd be speaking for you know two, three, four days at a time, I'd normally have to get myself going. I'd normally have right. to build myself up. I'd normally have to you know, get myself excited and then all of a sudden I'd drop in. Mm. And when I microdose, one of the things I find, I just stand on stage and I start and I'm there. And yeah. it's just like, wow. I don't, and I can literally sit there spitting in information almost like I'm observing myself <laughs> going, this yeah. is fucking amazing. Nice, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, my curiosity lies in the fact that, you know, is, is there, and again, the, 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 the obvious comparison is we go back to NZT, Limitless. Right, right, right. You know, we, we talk about the, the, the magic pill. Um, but are we going to see a possible period of time in the future where you're going to be able to get access to these substances, not just for psychotherapeutic benefit, you know, which we're seeing now happening in Colorado and Denver and other areas with psilocybin, but also for you know, just peak performance? Yeah, it's a great question. Funnily enough, that's one of the things Rick mentioned uh, at Burning Man. So I might have the dates wrong, somewhat wrong here, but I believe his goal is something like yeah, essentially, he wants to you know focus on the therapeutic um, application first for psilocybin, yeah. MDMA with uh, PTSD, etc., um, and get FDA approval and essentially get over the line legally on that side first. Yeah. But his vision, absolutely, after that is to go on to be able to make these things freely available to be able to go from you know 100 to 110 or baseline to beyond, rather than just to like help people who are suffering enormously get the baseline. Mm. So that, that is, I know for a fact that that is MAP's vision. Um, and I mean, even just from an ethical standpoint, I, I think that that should be the case legally in that I think people should be able to have their own kind of, you know, control over their own state of consciousness and access Absolutely. things that really help them. So I think it is going to go in that direction for sure. Yeah, Because we've seen an enormous um, evolution with cannabis. Yeah, and it's almost like cannabis was the was the front runner. Yeah, but what I and I'm hoping, and this is my prayer, like I'm hoping that the psychedelic movement should move quicker mm-hmm. into mainstream from a regulation right. perspective, because when you look at like when cannabis came out and we started talking about the, the medical benefits of cannabis, a lot of it was referred to as oh, it's just hippie science. Yeah. Whereas when we look at the 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 the, the research behind psychedelics, we've already got what thirty years of you know research in the yeah. bag. Right. before we even open it, that is validating what we're talking about here, which cannabis didn't really have mm. so much. Would you agree with that? It's interesting. I mean, well, one of the things probably that got, well, I, I'm not necessarily qualified to talk about this. I haven't done enough research into it, but I feel like potentially one of the things that got cannabis over the line is just the kind of how mainstream usage was. Right. So there's this like extreme advocacy from everyone because they all, you know, everyone uses Everyone's it. using it. Yeah, right. But I don't know if that's actually true. I'm actually not sure what the particulars were around it, uh, around the legislation uh, with it. Um, but it's exactly. I was re- it took so long. Like, we're, and we're seeing this now in Australia. You know, medical's been approved, and it was approved years ago, but no doctor was actually allowed to prescribe it. Right, <laughs> you know, right, for, right. For yeah, years. Kind of and then all of a sudden, doctors could prescribe it, but then there was no one to actually fulfill your prescription. Yeah, right, exactly. You yeah, know? And now bizarre. we're moving to the point where, you know, you've got, you know, medical farms that are being produced, and it's becoming more mainstream, and it's becoming. And the same thing happened here. Yeah. We're just like fucking 20 years behind. Yeah. It's funny that it, it kind yeah. of it seems to sort of slip in. Like I mean, even in Barcelona, there's this really. I still can't understand what the law is around cannabis, but you can go to, you can go to certain kind of um, almost like the Amsterdam equivalent to coffee shops, but yeah. they serve alcohol as well, and you can sort of buy it there. But like, it's either that buying it's illegal and then smoking it isn't, or vice versa. But you get all these kind of weird contradictory mm. laws, and I mean, even here you just have the federal state conflict, um, which is interesting. So. 
Yeah, it's 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 tricky to say. Um, Are you seeing a lot more research um, from like credible research uh, departments and uh, projects pop up around the US right now when it comes to? You know, looking at how this can be used more, more with greater levels of efficacy across the board, or cannabis specifically. Oh no, I'm talking about um, psychedelics. Psychedelics, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's there's been a yeah whole new wave of research. So there's the research, you know, as I'm sure you're familiar with, around um, MDMA and and uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy and PTSD. There's mm. research being done on uh, uh, an application around uh, ibogaine um, and opiate addiction. Um, there's research done and on... That's, oh, my God, the yeah, potential there is yeah, massive. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you've got the Ibogaine clinics in Mexico and Costa Rica already. Right. Um, and the, I don't know if you've seen any of the documentaries of, of, of the results some of these people are getting. It's no, I haven't absolutely actually, amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's a huge one and because it's such a severe acute problem as well. Mm. And then there's also um, you know, the research on psilocybin and smoking cessation and mm. psilocybin and end-of-life anxiety. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there is. And then we're actually doing research with Imperial College London, Robert, Robin Carhart-Harris and Mandel Kalen at Imperial College London, just looking at the relationship between psychedelic states and flow states, mm. um, which is a very sort of stealing fire themed research project because we're comparing two non-ordinary states of consciousness. What is it about psychedelics that enables us to achieve these flow states so easily? Uh, I think one thing that it is, is, uh, and it, well, it's all pretty uncertain. Um, yeah. We're not really sure. One kind of hypothesis is that um, the default mode network, the activity is changed by psychedelics in the default mode network. And the default mode network is also sometimes called your imagination network. And oftentimes, or that's kind of where your sort of sense of self is partially constructed from. So when you're not focused on something and you go back out into sort of thought mode, it's... um, often due to the default mode network and there tends to be kind of a shift in activity in the default mode network when taking when microdosing and things like that as well uh, and so you can get what you were describing when you're speaking that kind of extra sense of selflessness where you're not you're not getting in your own way as much um, and so your own neuroses and thinking and kind of excessive cognition is quietened down or kind of put to the side a little bit so you can mm. just focus on doing whatever it is that you're trying to do and that's a that feeling, as we've been saying, is a huge component of flow. That sense of selflessness. Mate, I'm so excited for you. Like to be, uh, to have the brain that you have, <laughs> the network that you're in right now, uh, and the path that you're on. You really are at the epicenter of of something incredibly epic, um, <laughs> which is incredible. What, what what's next for you and the Flow Collective project? I think uh, yeah, we well, appreciate that. First of all, um, I think advancing our research as much as as much as possible. So one thing I didn't mention is that our, our main kind of long-term research initiative is what Stephen describes as decoding the neurophysiology of flow. So figuring out exactly what flow actually is in the brain and in the body. Um, so that we are 100% clear that, you know, when, again, when your brainwave signature is X and your, you know, um, neuroanatomical signature is X and your neuroelectrical signature is X, et cetera, or neurochemical signature is X, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you are in flow so that we know very clearly. And so we're looking into all of the different, um, essentially kind of like physiological and neurophysiological correlates to flow state, trying to understand, you know, what the heart rate variability signature of a flow state is and what even the core body temperature or decrease or increase in Mm. core body temperature is when 
in a flow state, what the respiratory signature is like, what the galvanic skin response signature is like, et cetera, et cetera. So that eventually, I don't know if you know the aura ring, but the goal is eventually to be able to take in biometric data like this does. This measures heart rate variability, uh, sleep, a number of other different things, um, and eventually allow us to, you know, determine whether or not someone is in a flow state very accurately and acutely. And then that will allow also for biofeedback training to be able to get into that state more mm. quickly or consistently as well, because we know how we have to shift your physiology or your neurophysiology to create that state. So that's our long-term research initiative. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, Personally, one of the things I'm most excited about is just the very, very simple, straightforward application of our training. Mm. The idea of being able to you know, go in and help, um, I don't know, a, whatever, a, a 45-year-old mother of three kids who doesn't have very good habits around her work practices, to be able to help her just rejig those and you know, shave a day off her work week or whatever the case may be, or an hour and evening off her work week just by increasing her productivity through getting her to flow more consistently. Those are a lot of the results that I'm actually most excited about mm. is the very simple but impactful results we can have through working with individuals and with organizations in the same way. So. Yeah, right. Mate, it's so, I'm so excited for you. I, I, I honestly, <laughs> if I could be anyone in the world right now, I'd probably be you just because of you. I, I, I see you becoming it. one of the names that you're working with, mate. I really do. I appreciate that. Very I really, much. And I mean that. I, I get yeah. the opportunity and the privilege to speak to a lot of people. Um, and you are really primed, mate, to do some incredible work. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate To become it. one of the next greats to come through. That's very so, smooth. Ryan, Doris, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on Stoppable. You got it, man. Great, to, great to meet you, brother. You too, mate. This yeah. episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, KerwinRay.com and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.